series in Mark's Gospel, the world turned upside down, and we're uh, actually, at the end of chapter 10, we're getting, getting, drawing towards the end. Tom Arnold is an American comedian and actor. He acted in the series Roseanne, if anybody remembers that. His autobiography is called How I Lost Five Pounds in Six Years. <laughs> an interviewer asked Tom why he wrote the book and was astonished at his honesty. Arnold said that most entertainers are in show business because they are broken people looking for affirmation. The reason I wrote this book, he said, is because I wanted something out there so people would tell me they liked me. It's the reason behind almost everything I do. <laughs> now, I wonder what you would replace entertainer with in your life. The reason why most what is because they're broken people looking for affirmation. Pastor Scott Sauls writes, genuinely good endeavors like business or the arts or parenting or healthcare or education or ministry become broken endeavors when we start depending on them to satisfy our thirst for love, our thirst for esteem, our thirst for applause and approval in ways that only Jesus Christ can. Let's be honest, we all really want to be someone, don't we? Not just anyone, someone. We all want our life to count. We want our life to matter. We want to be respected or perhaps admired. We'd like to succeed, to be really good at something. We'd like to be loved. And perhaps if we're really honest, we'd secretly like to be exceptional. Nobody in here started out with the life ambition to be average, did you? What do your daydreams look like? Honestly, where are you in your daydreams? Given half a chance, we would all like to be great. And if not us, if we realize it's just you know, game over for us, then at least our children, at least the children will be great. Or maybe only one of them. <laughs> maybe one of them will be a VIP. At least they could be someone. And one reason why, why a lot of people go through something called a midlife crisis is that there comes a point in life when it dawns on you that it really, really isn't going to happen. It's too late for that. <laughs> Some people are laughing. They know it. So they go and do something crazy. If you see me wearing a ponytail and riding into this car park on a Harley Davidson, have words. <laughs> you know, all of that is just driven by despair. And according to our passage today, we don't need to give up hope. Because our text shows us that every one of us can be truly great. Really? Do you believe that? Unashamedly, this is how you can be a truly exceptional person. You can be noble. You can be glorious. You can live a life worthy of praise. Here it is. Here's what we've been waiting for. You ready? Followers of Jesus are rescued to serve. And the greatest of us is the slave of all. 
That's how to be great. To be truly great, we've been ransomed, Jesus says, in order to serve. And the greatest of us is the slave of everyone. Now, of course, that is absolutely countercultural to every culture that's ever existed in the world. Because Jesus Christ says, contrary to the beliefs of all of our hearts, that the way up is the way down. That the way to be exalted is to be brought low. That true greatness consists in total humility. It's not what we thought. Now, in our world, the greater you are, the more people you have serving you, don't you? Uh, many years ago when I was a, a headhunter, I did some work for the Prince of Wales Charities. The Prince of Wales has done an extraordinary amount of good using his influence uh, in this country and, and further afield. But there was a great story that at one point, Her Majesty the Queen apparently said in, in exasperation, he has more servants than I have. <laughs> Probably have to take that out of the recording later. Jesus says, the greater you are in the kingdom of God, the more people you will serve. Here's how to be great. Followers of Jesus are ransomed to serve, and the greatest of us is the slave of all. We see this developed today over three points. The first is a request. The second is a ransom. And the third is, is the road, the road forward. So there's a request, then there's a ransom, and then there's a road forward. Are you still with me? Great. Request, verse 32. Eileen just read it for us. They're on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Uh, while, and the disciples were astonished while those who were following were afraid. And he takes them aside and he gives them this prediction again. This is now the third time. And every time Jesus predicts his death, he adds a little bit more information. So the first time was back in uh, chapter 8. And then there was one in chapter 9 and now in chapter 10. And there's yet more information because this time he tells them that he's going to be um, going up to Jerusalem. That will be the place of his death. He will be condemned. There's a, that's a judicial phrase. It's a legal uh, vocabulary. So there's some sort of legal process going to happen to try him and condemn him. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. That's the non-Jewish people who were running the country and more about cruelty and humiliation. So it's not just mockery now, it's also being spat upon, flogged, killed. And again, he says, three days later, I will rise. Now, each time Jesus gives a prediction, there's a response from the disciples, and each time he has to correct them. See, all this is very carefully put together by Mark. You may remember Peter, back in chapter 8, uh, Jesus predicted his death for the first time, and Peter begins, takes him aside and rebukes him. And Jesus has to correct Peter. Well, here again, this is the third time. And the third time, yet again, guess what? The disciples need to be corrected. And that's very important because this teaching is intended for us. We're not just reading history here. This is living words for us because this teaching shows us how to be a disciple and it shows us what we are like. It's holding up a mirror. We don't always like what we see, do we? This whole section is about what it means to be a Christian, a disciple. And the disciples are like the mirror being held up to you and me. And this section, interestingly, from chapter 8 to chapter 10, is framed by two blind men 
who get to see. The blind man who needed to be healed in two stages in chapter 8 and blind Bartimaeus in chapter 10. It frames the whole thing. We'll come back to those guys in a minute. But the key point is disciples are those Jesus enables to see the truth and follow him. Now, given that there are three predictions, Jesus says in verse 45, this is what he's come for. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's telling us here what what he has come to do. Then it follows, doesn't it, that his death is absolutely central to his purposes. It is the climactic event in his entire ministry. And that's what he is emphasizing with his disciples. This is what I've come for. You've seen many things. You've seen many amazing things. You've seen people healed. You've seen nature calmed. You've seen a small amount of food multiplied into a feast that could feed a, a great number of people. You've seen demons cast out from people who were absolutely ruined and possessed. You've even seen the dead raised to life. You've seen all of that, and you've heard the most amazing teaching you will ever hear, but that's not the, real, the main reason I've come. All of that is in support of the main reason, which is this. I came to, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, many people. That is what he's come for. That is the central thing that the whole book is driving towards. And so that's what he's emphasizing with the disciples. And so what do you think about James and John? What do you think about this request? Verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, here's the request. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, let me tell you, I'm a parent of five children, and I know when this kind of question, you know, and I'm not going to be fooled by it. Dad, could you do something for me? You don't just say yes, do you? You don't know what you're going to be asked. Somebody who's saying this is trying, is trying to set you up. So Jesus isn't fooled either, and he says, hmm, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> A wise reply there, verse 36. And then they make the, make the ask, And it is absolutely audacious and brazen. Here's what they ask for. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now that is breathtaking cheek. Isn't it? They've sidled up to him and they're asking, all we want, Lord, is the the top jobs. We want the right and the left seats in your glory. Now imagine them. They think Jesus is going to be enthroned as a king on a throne. And there next to the throne are two little thrones. You know how that always is in films. There's a couple of other ones either side. They're a bit smaller, but they're nevertheless, they're up there. The right and the left. And these two brothers want to be the two top dogs. They're seeking position, power, influence. They want to be the crown princes, second only to Jesus. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 20, Matthew shares a bit more information. It says that their mum was involved. <laughs> they came with their mum. And, they, and their mum, mum got, they got their mum to ask, or maybe she was the ultimate pushy mother. Now Mark spares them that, that embarrassment. But nevertheless, just think about what the guys are doing here. Where is the recognition of what Jesus has just said is going to happen to him? What are they thinking about the other disciples? There's 10 other guys, you know. And actually, these two, James and John, were one of three who were always quite close to Jesus. Peter, James, and John. They were the ones that were taken in, especially 
when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Peter, James, and John were the only three who went up the mountain with Jesus, where he met Moses and Elijah and was transformed into great dazzling radiance. Peter, James, and John, these are the close ones. So how come James and John are trying to cut this deal? Do you know what they're doing? Let's cut Peter out. We're brothers, buddies. <laughs> we're, we're brothers of the same mother. Here we are. And oh my days, what they're trying to do here is naked ambition. They see Jesus as their ticket to glory. Jesus will make me great. And he is so gracious. Look at verse 38. You don't know what you're asking. And he says, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? You know, it, it is so gracious. The cup and the baptism. A cup is often a picture in the Old Testament of God's anger. God's wrath against the sin of the world. Jesus will drink it. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going to pray, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. That, nobody wants to drink that cup, the cup of God's anger against all the sin of the world. Can you drink the cup? <laughs> and what about the baptism? Now, baptism can have very positive meaning. It's very positive in the Christian church. We baptized a number of new Christians here at Easter. But it can carry a very negative connotation too, can't it? We talk about somebody going through an awful experience. They went through a baptism of fire. It was awful. You know, they got consumed by it. It means to be flooded with calamity. And that is what will come to Jesus. He will be flooded with destruction, destroyed at the cross. He's going to drink the cup and be baptized with that baptism. But, oh, nobody else could do that. And in verse 39, a little too quickly, they reply, we can. <laughs> Guys. Jesus answered, well, you know, you will share in my sufferings. All the disciples did, except Judas. But they will not sit at his right and left. Now, this is a very interesting phrase, the right and the left. Because the other time it's used in Mark's gospel is about the two thieves who were crucified on the right and left of Jesus. And what that suggests is that the cross is his throne. The cross is his enthronement, his place of glory. And the right and the left are reserved for two thieves. But that's not what James and John are asking for here, is it? They don't want the suffering. They want the glory. And when the other ten hear, they are absolutely furious. Look at verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John, and they are raging. How dare they? Sneaky little guys going up to him like that and trying to get those two jobs. And why are they so angry? Is it because they are so sensitive towards Jesus and they understand his mission? No, probably not. It's because James and John tried to beat them to the top jobs. They feel cheated because they are just as ambitious. Everybody sees Jesus as a ticket to glory. We know this because Jesus' teaching in the next few verses is directed at all of them. So that's the request, the first point. Now, of course, you and I, we would never be like that, would we? 
I mean, we would never see Jesus as a ticket to, to greatness, would we? Would we? Hold on a minute. Let's just think about this. Let me just ask you for, to think for a moment about your prayers. Do you ever go to God in prayer and basically say, Lord, I want you to do for me whatever I ask? Here are a few diagnostics. Are your prayers largely concerned with your own needs, and your own life, and your own comfort, and your own ambition, or with the kingdom of God? What do you pray for? If God doesn't help you when you prayed for something, if God doesn't deliver you from some difficulty or solve some problem in the way that you see fit, how do you respond? Do you complain, despair, become bitter, curse? Do you ever give up praying when you don't get what you want? I've prayed for it for 10 years. I'm not praying for it anymore. You know what we're saying there? Lord, give me whatever I want. Now, just compare that kind of prayer, do for us what we ask, with the prayer that Jesus gave us. Do you remember when the disciples said, teach us to pray? What did he say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my kingdom come, thy will be done. You see the difference? Jesus' prayer is all about the kingdom. Now, it does respond to our needs for daily bread, for, for protection and so on. But it's not all about us fundamentally and our problems. That's the way to pray. You see, we are dangerously close to James and John sometimes. Another diagnostic. Friends, do you let your life be ruled by worry and anxiety? What does that say about you, spiritually? Now, there is such a thing as clinical anxiety. I'm not talking about that. That's a category that needs to be dealt with by the doctors, counselors, therapists. But most of us don't struggle with that level of clinical anxiety. Yet our lives are ruled by anxiety when we stop and think. What is at the heart of anxiety? Isn't it the belief that I know how life should go, and if it doesn't go that way, I'm out of control? You see what we're thinking? In that scenario, where is God? He is the supreme meter of your needs. And who's calling the shots? We are. How are your prayers? What do you ask for? Now this is the basic human position, by the way. All of us are like this. It's the place we all start from. We all want to be great, and we also want to be in charge, in control. John Milton's famous poem, Paradise Lost, depicts Lucifer, the devil, saying this when he's in hell. Here at last we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy. He will not drive us hence. Here in hell we may reign secure. And in my choice, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. That's the basic human position. I want to be glorious. I want to be ruling. But you know, there is a better way. 
Followers of Jesus are ransomed to serve, and the greatest of us is the slave of all. And so the second point, Jesus tells them even more clearly what it is that he has come to do, which is to be a ransom. Have a look there in verse 42 and onwards. You know, Jesus says, that those who were regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Jesus says, look around you at the nations, the world around. Look at what people do when they get some power. Look what everybody does when they get some power. They get the corner office with a view. They get the power suit. They get the biggest car. Or even it starts in school. They get the biggest gang. They get the cool kids in the playground. This is worldly power. This is how people handle greatness. Get everyone else to serve me. And Jesus says, not so with you. And King's Church, this is a message for us. It's not so with us. We're not going to be like that. We're going to be servants of all. Do you want to become great? He says, then be a servant. And this word, which is diakonos, we get the word deacon from it, is literally a a waitress or waiter, somebody who waits on tables, And it's very interesting, if you come here in the week, we have this marvelous community cafe called The Well, and it's staffed by a mixture of employees and volunteers, and people, they, they serve people all day long, and they serve tables, and you know what happens when you serve someone at a table? Much of the time, they don't even look at you. They certainly don't look you in the eye. I decided I would help one day and took a table of drinks to somebody outside, And as I put them down, the lady said, without looking at me, and there's a sandwich as well. I felt a little bit offended, actually. Excuse me, do you know I'm the senior pastor here? I'm just doing you a favor, love. I was like, no, control it. So I I went inside. I said, said, yeah, he's just making the sandwich. So I took the sandwich out, put it down. There's a sandwich, madam. And she said... uh, Where's the sugar? (laughs) That's what it means to be a waiter. Jesus then goes even further with this, by the way. Verse 44, he says, um, whoever wants to be the first must be the slave. This is even a, a more extreme word, slave, doulos. This is somebody who doesn't actually have any rights. Right? A slave belongs to someone else. Slaves don't get to change career. Slaves don't bother writing a CV. They're not in a union. They don't get the bank holiday off. They can be told to do any task, however menial, and they have to do it without questioning. He's talking about the lowest place in society here. The lowest status, the place of serving anyone. Now, what on earth could be the motive for us to live like that? Which goes against every grain in our body. Verse 45 tells us, and it is the most glorious verse. It's perhaps the heart, the key to Mark's whole book. This is why Jesus must die. Even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, even Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what is a ransom? You probably think about the old Wild West films, you know, and they kidnap someone, and there's a ransom. 
Um, and kidnappers demand a ransom to this very day. And there is a bit of that here. But in Jesus' world, he's really referring to the Old Testament background. And the Old Testament background, a ransom was a price paid to free somebody who'd been enslaved. Now, you could get taken into slavery for various reasons in the ancient world. You could have been in, a, in a, a, an armed conflict, a, a, a battle, and those who were victorious would take the people they'd beaten and enslave them. Just you know, take them as, as unpaid labor. Or there was another way, actually, in the law of Israel, that if you became bankrupt, you know, your crops failed and you spent all your savings, you had nothing left, uh, you could still do one thing, which was you could actually sell yourself into slavery to pay off your debts. That was a way. So it could, it could be those two contexts or others. And here's the key thing about this. A slave cannot buy their own freedom. They now belong to somebody else. They cannot buy their own freedom. Someone else must do it. Someone else must pay the price. But somebody has to pay. And Jesus here says, this is why he has come. He's going to be the ransom to set many slaves free. So he's giving us a glimpse here into some very deep things of God. Just think about these words. Let's slow down and think about these words. Even the Son of Man did not come. See, Jesus wasn't just born. He came into our world. He came on a mission from heaven to earth, from eternity to time, from greatness and glory into humility and misery. And he came with purpose to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came to pay the costly ransom. And he does it, he says here, to serve, not to be served, but to serve. In other words, Jesus has come to free us from the masters that wreck and dominate our lives because we're all enslaved and we need to be freed. And you say, oh, I don't think I'm a slave. You are. You're enslaved to something. The Bible says that one of our biggest slave masters is sin. What is the thing that dominates your horizons, your mental consciousness, your pride? What is it that makes you addicted to something that harms you? What is your life oriented around pleasing yourself? These things are enslave us and they don't make us happy. The Bible also says that we're enslaved to Satan. There are dark spiritual powers that oppose God. They blind us and they keep us oppressed. And it also says that we're slaves to death because we're all afraid of it. Death is the ultimate slave master who calls time on your life before you want it. Usually in very painful and slow ways. We deny death, we avoid death. In our culture, we don't even see death. It's kept out of view, but we still live in fear of it. And Jesus says he's come to set us free, to liberate us from these things, from our sin, from Satan, and from death. And Jesus is going to pay the ransom price himself, and it says here he's going to do it for many. And the rest of the Bible reveals how many that is. 
It's a number beyond what you and I could count. And that number is already in the billions. It's a ransom for a vast multitude of people. Now, where did Jesus pay this ransom? We know he didn't have much money. He only had the clothes he was standing up in. Most of us think of ransoms being paid in cash because cash is the most valuable thing, isn't it, in most people's minds? Jesus doesn't pay a ransom in cash. He gives his very life. He pays the ransom at the cross, which will come to soon. The cruel cross. And the language here of the Son of Man coming not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many is suggestive of one of the great passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. You don't need to turn to it. Let me just read a few verses about this person that Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, predicted. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Isaiah continues, It was the Lord's will to crush him and make him suffer. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. How did Jesus do this? Because he poured out his life to death. That prophecy predicts the cross in the most extraordinary detail and says that this servant will be crushed, brought low for the sake of many. He gave himself for you. And he held nothing back. That is what you cost Jesus. Will you listen to me now? This is what you cost, what it cost God to win you and buy you back. That's what you are worth to God. Have you ever truly seen that? I wonder. Have you ever truly seen that this is what you were worth to God, that he would send Jesus to die for you and give everything for you? Now, if, if you can see that, here is the motivation that changes us and stops us serving ourselves and makes us want to start serving others because the greatest one, Jesus, became the slave of all. I wonder what models of greatness shape our hearts. I'll speak to the young people for a minute. You girls, you know, your world is pressing in on you with imagery about how you should look. It's cruel. Because nobody really looks like that. It's all done with filters. But they're pressing in and saying to you, if only you had this body, these looks, this beauty, then you would enjoy pretty privilege. And you could rule. I wonder, young people, if you're ruled by the image of the cool person, the insider. You know that person? So cool, they're always in the inner circle. They use their power by excluding others, making other people look small. That's no model for someone who follows Christ. 
Some of you are just so, you love sports. You think about the sports person, that person. He or she is just so talented and brilliant at what they do. But do they use their gifts for serving others or for self? Adults, are we in some way captured by imagery of the alpha male or the alpha female, the person who can boss the room? Every conversation, they tend to dominate. People make way for them. The successful person, the one that's reached the top in any profession, the driven person, the aggressive person who will crush others to get there, that is no model for a Christian. There's an awful lot of them around in South London and Surrey. There's a lot of wealth here. People who have arrived by standing on the backs of others. What does it mean for you to live as a servant this week? For your posture to be that in the way you conduct your business or your parenting or your relationships. What does it look like for us? Mark here is presenting us with a choice. That's why he's put it together like this. He's showing us James and John, and that ain't pretty. He's showing us Jesus and the amazing ransom that he's going to pay, and that is beautiful. And now finally he shows us a road. We have to choose which way we're going to turn. Because he tells us a story of a blind man. Look at verse 47 as we come to a close. Verse 46, beg your pardon. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bar Timaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And why is he shouting? Because he's sitting there by the side of the road. He can't even see Jesus. And he's worried that he's going to go past. And this is his one chance to get hold of him. And this guy has figured out quite a lot about Jesus. Ironically, he's figured out more than anyone else in the book so far. (laughs) He's just a blind beggar sitting by the side of the road with his cloak spread out, trying to get a few coins so he can eat. And yet he's realized, I don't know how, because of what he's heard and talking to people, he realized Jesus is the son of David. It means he's the king. And so he even identifies Jesus as that when he shouts, probably to get his attention, because he wants Jesus. And uh, people are saying, oh, would you just pipe down? You're just a bit loud. Many people rebuked him, told him to shut up. But he shouted all the more. I won't do it again, all right? He shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. (laughs) And guess what? Jesus turns and heals him. Now why, remember I said earlier on that that this section of Mark's book begins with the healing of a blind man. You remember Jesus healed him and he says, I can see, but it's like trees walking about. He got the sight back, but not the cognition. And now at the end of this section of Mark, we have another blind man. And this is not just Mark filling up with random material. It's very, very intentional to show us somebody who now can see. The point is, this is what seeing really looks like when you see Jesus. Because Bartimaeus is a picture of a Christian disciple. He shows us what being a real Christian is like. Professor Tom Wright imagines Jesus saying, what do you want me to do for you, really? Do you, Bartimaeus, want to give up begging? 
the only life he'd known. Do you want to have to live differently, to work for a living, to have no reason to sit by the road all day, whining at passers-by? It's quite a challenge, and Bartimaeus rises to it splendidly. He wants the new life. Not only sight, but the chance to follow Jesus. Fancy seeing for the first time in many years, and imagine that the first thing you saw was Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, on the way to death. I love this because Jesus says to Bartimaeus, go, your faith has healed you. And Bartimaeus doesn't go, he follows. I'm in, he says, I'm coming to Jerusalem. Bartimaeus is a model for us. He's already a man of faith and courage and discipleship. He recognizes who Jesus is, the son of David. He believes Jesus can help him. Your faith has healed you. He leaves the old way of life. That cloak that's been spread out isn't to keep warm. It's very sunny there. That cloak is to receive money. He leaves the cloak behind, and he follows Jesus on the way. And the way was early Christian language for Christianity. We're on the way. And that's what he does. So in closing, let me ask you, where are you in this story, friends? Honestly. Are you like James and John, really seeking personal advantage from Jesus? Or are you like Bartimaeus, gladly following wherever he will lead? It's a very stark contrast. Bartimaeus is showing us that the way to life is following Jesus to the cross. Have we turned from the old way of life and followed Christ? Have we embraced what it means to be a servant of all? How's it going to change you tomorrow? Here's one example. Major General Donald Wilson Haffenden, C-B-E-O-B-E, was a senior officer in the British Army who commanded troops all around the world. He was a general in the Second World War. He was also a committed Christian. In the late 1950s, he came to give a tea time talk on a Saturday afternoon to a little boys' brigade meeting in Oldham. My dad was there as a 16-year-old. And he recalls how the boys noisily ate their sandwiches and cake as the major general spoke to them about Jesus. And then the boys rushed out, off to get on with other stuff probably running out to play football. Bunch of unwashed, oldham boys. And as they were leaving, my dad happened to glance back and he saw something that stayed with him for more than 60 years. The Major General was tidying up after the boys, picking up rubbish off the floor and the rubbish off the tables that they had left behind. I guess it was thoughtfulness for those who would have to clean the place later. It impacted me as an example of humility, thoughtfulness, and the power of a servant heart, although I might not have expressed it quite so elegantly as a 16-year-old. That's what it looks like. Followers of Jesus are ransomed to serve. The greatest of us is the slave of all. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we need time now to breathe, to process this, to ask your Holy Spirit to show us where you want to draw us more and more into your life, 
which is the way of the cross. Give us grace, Lord, not to let this word from you be snatched away by the many pressing concerns of life. Have mercy on us, we pray. Have mercy.